This week's episode was brought to you by More Cute Stories Volume 4, the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Available now on Amazon, iTunes, and more. Welcome to Season 3! Hello, and welcome to Community Core Weekly, the greatest online show, and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And your your infliction changed a little bit there. It did. I've never it heard did. you say it like that before. Yeah, I, I wanted to try something different. Was, how, did that, how did that feel? Well, we just finished watching Anchorman 2, so I figured I wanted to pretend like I was Ron Burgundy. Uh, you're Ron Burgundy? Yes, I've got a mustache. No, you don't. Yes. It's been well, a week. There's no way you've grown a mustache in a week that I've not seen you. Oh, uh, that's that's a good point. Is it a fake mustache? No, there's nothing there. I took a Sharpie and... You so you know, look ridiculous. <laughs> don't always. Fair enough. That's a fair point. <laughs> Speaking of ridiculous, before this gets any worse, we should probably move on to the history segment. Exactly. It's time for Disney History. Now, way back in episode 68, which seems like forever ago, we <laughs> took a look at the four Monsanto-sponsored attractions at Disneyland. Uh, they are Adventures Through Inner Space, uh, the Fashions and Fabrics Through the Ages exhibit, the Hall of Chemistry, and of course, the House of the Future. Now, while we did go over each one, we thought it was important to kind of go back and cover one a little more in depth, since it had some uh, deep-reaching impacts on a lot of folks, and uh, it kind of correctly predicted and incorrectly predicted many <laughs> many things that were to come in the, in the coming days and uh, that one of course is the house of the future dun 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 Ooh, nice, so, nice we need yeah we need to ha- we need to get a i was gonna say a better music budget we probably have but we probably have the best music on any podcast we, we just need a soundboard is what we need we need a soundboard That's yeah what i wonder is. we could borrow gary hall no yeah. we need to clean it yeah yeah a little bit yeah probably a little bit so, okay anyway um Walt really believed that people experiencing something was most important. Uh, you, could, you could always read about these grand new ideas or see photos of new concepts, but it would be much, much more compelling if they could actually experience it themselves. You know, they could see new ideas implemented, uh, go back and implement them into their everyday lives themselves. So in a way, that's how the House of the Future came about. Now, at this time, Monsanto wanted to expand its presence in the home construction industry since it was it was a, a booming industry at the time. It was a big deal. But by 1953, they, they contracted with a team from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT. Now, the group included architects Richard Hamilton and Marvin Goody from the Department of Architecture and Engineer Albert G.H. Dietz from the Plastic Research Laboratory at the Department of Building Engineering and Construction. And um, Monsanto's Plastics Division sponsor the project there's a lot of big uh company names in there yeah like i'm surprised you, usually you throw those on me i i usually do we should we should go back and re-record this so you have to say <laughs> <laughs> okay well well the goal of the project was to design a house that would explore the maximum use of plastics as a material for home construction and and to use it in new ways that hadn't been thought of before 
The, the challenge was not to simply replace wooden components with plastic ones, but to find new and innovative ways to exploit the material's unique characteristics, structural and aesthetic qualities. Basically, you know, plastic as far as the eye could see. Let's just replace everything with plastic. That's basically what it was. <laughs> Give me all of the plastics. <laughs> now, based on this idea, Douglas Haskell of the American Institute of Architects uh, thought the future meant that homes would not be mass-produced like automobiles, but would come from scientific laboratories, which is kind of weird. I don't want to live in a house that was created in a test tube, to be honest with you. <laughs> and uh, kind of like it is now, that was pretty radical thinking back for 1954, 1953. But back to the house, it was a modular polyester... Uh, structure reinforced with fibrous glass and the materials and the methodology were similar to those developed by Charles Ames for his molded plastic chairs of the 1950s. The design was um, was a white cruciform with four gracefully curved fiberglass wings that were cantilevered from a 256 square foot central core. The, the central core also housed the air temperature control units and each wing was eight feet tall, 16 feet wide, and 16 feet long. Uh, overall, the house was 1,280, 1,280 square feet and had three bedrooms, two baths, a living room, a dining room, a family room, and a kitchen. And that is larger than where I am currently living, so already <laughs> this sounds like a great idea. Now, the Imagineers actually chose a cruciform because it assured full daylight for every room, it kind of reduced interroom noise, and it provided extra privacy for various family activities. They have all this room for activities. All this room for activities. All this okay, room. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like any time there's a lot of room or the word activities, we always have to we reference go that, that way. movie. Yes. <laughs> no, the design itself it also really allowed for easy expansion. And the bottom was a compression member, and the top had a tension ring that the modules hooked onto and they hung from. And you can hang more pairs of them as you need it. So if you wanted to have, you know, family and friends over, we didn't have the room, just add another module or two. How <laughs> just easy run, is down, that? run down the store. Yeah, the corner module store. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Johnny, I need two modules for the weekend. <laughs> well, speaking of Johnny, Johnny Hench or John Hench. That was not done on purpose, why the fuck? No, that was an accident. That worked out good. pretty well. <laughs> All right. So, so John, Johnny Hench, loved the design and thought that there was virtually no bad location for building it, uh, whether it be in a rocky location or on a hillside. The 16 by 16 pedestal would have been easy to work with. You could you could even rotate it on the pedestal to change the views. Uh, wow, that's a great way you invite friends over. I don't want to look at the castle anymore. And then, I want to and look then, at no, Tomorrowland. You, you move it in the middle of the night, they get confused. Well, anyway. That would be great, actually. That's a great practical <laughs> joke. It's an expensive one. so It okay. is, but that's okay. So, uh, so as I mentioned, you could rotate it <laughs> to change the views. Uh, Monsanto described the house as strangely graceful. Sort of like us. Eh. We're, we're gracefully strange? I'll go with that one. Okay, we'll do that one. Okay. And Disney proudly claimed that hardly a natural material appeared anywhere in the house. I just, that makes me chuckle. Virtually every surface was synthetic. Yeah, it just seems really, really weird. But, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> kind of cool. But by the early 1960s, 15% uh, of plastic production was dedicated to home building itself. And in 1953, MIT produced a report called Plastics in Housing, very clever of them, um, to explore the expanded uses of the material. And the objective was to develop plastics as a sound engineering materials and to help the construction industry kind of utilize new designs and materials to achieve production line methods and facilities. 
And the demonstration house was a very dramatic example on how to increase the acceptance of plastics as a construction material. So it was kind of like a, uh, a prototype, if you will, for mm-hmm. uh, you know other construction companies to say, hey, this is a thing. This, this could be good for you guys. <laughs> the, uh, the tour of the house itself started in the dining and family room. All the furniture was ultra-modern and made of plastic materials. The hope was the home would stimulate your imagination. But for many, the highlight was the kitchen. The Calvinator division of American Motors Corporation designed the Step Saver kitchen. It was dubbed the Adams for Living kitchen. Many of the appliances either dropped from cabinets or popped up from the counter. A pop-up dishwasher used ultrasonic waves to clean and would also be the storage unit for all of your plastic dishes. And instead of one large refrigerator freezer unit, the house featured three cooling units called cold zones that lowered from ceiling cabinets. Frozone? Yeah, frozones. That was well before, well, never mind. Uh, Where is my super suit? I was going with that. I was going to go with that one as well. Okay, so super suits aside, we had um, one zone for regular refrigeration, one for frozen, and one for irradiated foods, and not the current frozen film. Oh, I was going to ask for that, actually. I know you were, so okay. So even the storage shelves lowered from the ceiling unit just by pushing a button. Rising from the counter was a microwave oven. Ooh, classy. Mm-hmm. So the Sylvania Electric Products Company, they provided adjustable lighting behind polarized plastic ceiling tiles lights in, in the room. And the Bell Telephone Company, uh, they installed the push-button speakerphone with preset dialing. And there was also a climate control system would allow for uh, different temperatures in different zones from within the house. And there's a theme here, a lot of buttons. There were <laughs> even buttons where you can push to get the scent of a rose or the ocean into any room. So... Wow. It's kind of like your own private version of soaring, except not terrible. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Now, also in the children's room, it was divided into two by a sliding panel, and one side was for the boy, and one side was for the girl. Uh, because, of course, in, in the future, they just assumed everyone had one boy and one girl. That's, yes. I mean, that makes sense. But uh, plastics allowed for tough, durable materials that were easily washable. You could just wash it with a hose, pretty much. Um, <laughs> so both children shared a bathroom, and the bathroom featured a movable sink that rose and fell with the push of a button. So there was buttons everywhere, and anytime yeah. you would press one, crazy things would Something happen. Something would happen. Wow. I would love to have different smells. It'd be great. Um, movie night, you could have a popcorn smell. You could have a popcorn smell. Hey. All for it. So. Okay. So the next stop on the tour was the master bedroom and bathroom. For the lady, she had a vanity with a push-button speakerphone. Huh? The master bath was modeled in two pieces. Uh, along with the built-in electric razor and toothbrush is another hands-free push-button phone mounted on the wall. Because apparently really everybody in the future... Present? Hey, that's a good point, but everybody in the future has phones everywhere. Yes. Gee. Well, we okay. do. In our pockets now, yes, so in our I pockets, guess they so. call that one, right? <laughs> okay, so this is a different phone because it also contains a closed-circuit television so you could see who was at the front door. I wonder if they could see you while you were shaving or brushing your teeth. I guess they could because there's a lot of windows in that house. Oh, that's true. That's true. Not that anybody would ever stalk anybody else. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. And the ceiling lighting was adjustable and had panelescent panels, which act as a nightlight. And there was even a sound system in the shower. And now I just have a Bluetooth speaker in the bathroom. So yeah, see, totally predicted all these things that we're doing now. Yeah, with with a button. It's got three buttons on it. Yes, too. see? Well, maybe yeah, they... yours is too many buttons compared to their buttons, so I don't know. <laughs> buttons of the future. 
But finally, there was this spacious living room, which featured a giant, non-operational, wall-mounted television screen and a built-in stereo system. Now, in the real one, if there was a real one, of course the TV would work, because having a non-working <laughs> TV would make no sense. But in this one, it did not work. Uh, John Hench himself, he designed the Alpha Chair, which was the first contour chair that adjusts automatically, and it had a phone and music system with built-in speakers built right into the chair. And facing Sleeping Beauty Castle was ceiling-to-floor thermal pane picture windows featuring decorative laminated safety glass. So it had a pretty good view of the castle until you moved it, and then you were looking at Tomorrowland. And you'd fight over it. Yes, of course. Well, at least it was the Tomorrowland from that time period, not the current Tomorrowland. Yes, the Tomorrowland that looked great. (laughs) This editorial brought to you by Communicore Weekend Industries. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so Disneyland opened the front door of the Monsanto House of the Future to guests on June 12, 1957. The attraction was free and it was located at a prime spot off of the Plaza Hub adjacent to the Circarama Theater. The location ensured a lot of foot traffic to the house. At night, the home would glow with all the lights on and it, it added a special magic to the area and a nice entry point into Tomorrowland. The attraction remained open until 1967 and it was estimated that more than 20 million guests walked through the house. Now, kind of in an unexpected way to prove the durability of plastic, there is a legend, or it is truth at this point really, that Disney had to go through an extraordinary effort to remove the attraction after it closed. So the original plan was kind of a one-day demolition, uh, and they would take a wrecking ball and just smash the house to pieces. But unfortunately, when the wrecking ball hit the house, it just kind of bounced off the side because the plastic was so strong. So after doing that a few times, um, they just took hacksaws and they took the house apart piece by piece because they couldn't do it any other way. So I guess plastic really was the wave of the future, but uh, I'm currently not living in a house of plastic. Therefore, um, it didn't work out that well. No, plastic appliances and things everywhere, but yeah. Yeah, not not my house. It's no, like the three no. little pigs, just um, <laughs> they didn't have a plastic house. <laughs> he's a nerd, he's a geek, because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah. It's George's Book of the Week. So this week's is an audiobook review because, you know, other things come across my desk on occasion. And this one is More Cute Stories, Volume 4, the 1964-65 New York, New York World's Fair, narrated by Rolly Crump. And all you guys know that Jeff is my co-host, and he had a lot to do with this project. And just because we're friends, and he let me stay for free at his house like a week ago, does not unduly influence my review. Does it? No, it doesn't. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> anyway, so... With these series, you know, any time that you actually get to sit down and you can listen to a real Disney legend talk about what it was like to work at the Disney Studios or with Walt on Disneyland projects or, you know, when he reminisces about other Disney legends, it is an incredibly rare treat. And with the release of the spectacular It's Kind of a Cute Story led Jeff and Leonard Kinsey of Bamboo Forest Publishing to release audio compilations of Rolly talking about some of a pretty monumental events and people. And quickly on the heels of the 50th anniversary of the opening of the World's Fair, this is called Synergy People, Bamboo Forest Publishing has released Volume 4. We learned that from Disney, by the way. (laughs) Doing it that way. (laughs) It is 60 minutes dedicated to the creation, the development, and the uh, installation of the four Disney attractions. And most Disney historians agree that this World's Fair, the 64 World's Fair, was a watershed moment for the company itself. 
not just as a testing bed for how accepting you know the East Coast would be for the Disney attractions, but also a, a touchdown, a touchstone, and a touchdown basically for breakthroughs in attractions, technology, and, and moving people around. And during the time of planning and installation, Rolly was one of Walt's favorite people at the studios, and he asked Walt asked Rolly to be personally involved in all the projects. And these uh, first-hand accounts that Rolly shares are insightful, heartwarming, and really very funny. Uh, not only do we hear about the planning of the attractions, but Rolly shares some cute stories. Go figure. I mean, that's sort of the I guess the whole theme of it. Okay, so when we get into the stories. Rolly does mention a few things that I've not heard before and relates some really, really direct tales about working with um, Bob Gurr, Mary Blair, uh, Claude Coates, Jack Fergus, Alice Davis. It's, it's obvious that Rolly has a lot of love for his fellow Disney legends uh, for Walt and for the work done by Disney at the fair. And, you know, beyond the normal stories about the pavilions, Rolly shares some very funny stories about installing them in New York and dealing with unions. Disney accountants experiencing certain foods for the first time and actually seeing snow for the first time in his life. And, and Rolly shares some very touching memories about Mary Blair, her children, and, and being with the Blairs while in New York. And there's also a very surprising story about an Imagineer that might have had a little too much to drink. <laughs> it's going to be a great yes, one. Yes, it is. It is. Okay. Um, I, I laughed out loud on the airplane, which was kind of embarrassing when I was listening <laughs> to it. Okay, so some of the stories were finally able to confirm tales I'd heard about but couldn't document anywhere. Uh, there were some practical jokes played in the waterways of It's a Small World and a tale about gangs from New York and Mr. Lincoln. And I'd heard from a good friend that people had picked up ball bearings from a neighboring pavilion and threw them at Lincoln to prove, to try to prove that he was a real person. It turned out that the local gangs were shooting ball bearings at him, so they actually did have to replace Lincoln's skin quite often. And as my comments, you know, when I reviewed the three other audio releases, simply hearing Rolly tell us these tales is nothing short of wonderful. You hear the smile in his voice and you can feel the warmth and the love that he felt for the Disney legends that he worked with. It's a great, it's a great way to experience the World's Fair from a designer's perspective, as well as just seeing what it was like to be part of the World's Fair experience. So More Cute Stories Volume 4, the 1964-65 New York's World's Fair, is a wonderful resource to add to your collection, as well as just a way to enjoy an hour of time with Rolly Crump. And you need to grab a copy today. I guarantee you'll enjoy it. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is actually located in Disneyland Paris, which some Ooh. of you may have been to before. Ah. I haven't. I have you? To interject. No, no. Uh, only okay. in my only in my dreams. Only in your dreams. Okay. So the window reads: Net Gross Force Green and Green, Counselors of Investment, John Force Green, Judson Green. Put your money where the mouse is. Now, John Force Green was the vice president and treasurer of Disneyland Paris before its opening, and he went on to become the senior vice president and chief financial officer of the park until 1994. And Judson Green was the chief financial officer of all Disney parks for a few years until he was promoted to president of Disney theme parks and resorts division in 1991. He helped to expand the company through the Disney Cruise Line, Tokyo Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> a small, small piece of the House of the Future still exists in Disneyland today, if you know where to look. Now, 
just by the entrance to Pixie Hollow, hidden in the bushes, uh, is a large, unsuspecting concrete block. And this block is actually one of the foundations for the House of the Future. Now, it's been hiding in plain sight for all these years, but Pixie magic these days keeps it uh, daily visitors from really seeing it. But the next time you're in the area, go peek around. You know, go ahead and look for it. The, the fairies are not going to mind. They won't yell at you because they're in the back. Yeah, I bet it's actually hiding the dinosaur egg or the dragon egg. There's dragon eggs there? The flying dragon egg. Nope. Don't like this conversation anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bring up a sore subject, didn't you? Anytime. I mean, you're, what, 10 minutes away from Disneyland? So what's fair is fair. Okay. I'll give you that. <laughs> I still, we'll still that. hate you a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> well, we made it through a whole episode without mentioning any half-day parks. Until now. Oh, shoot. Darn it. You know, you're just really twisting <laughs> that knife just a little more, aren't you? Yes, uh, Communicore Weekly now offers a line of Ginsu knives. That you could just Communicor repeatedly Weekly stab knives. Jeff with <laughs> in the ribs. Thanks a lot. Exactly so, but before it gets any worse, we want to thank everybody so much for watching and listening to another episode of us. Yes, please, please leave us a comment or give us a rating on iTunes. We we love to hear what you guys think about the show. Yes, even even the funny stuff. Yes. Oh, especially the funny stuff. Well, especially like that, that stuff. Yep. And feel free to email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. And of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call, leave us a message on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And there's still time to pick up your copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical. The best 45 minutes you will ever have. You know, I was driving I today, and Battle for the Magic Kingdom came on and <sighs> that randomly, and it just amazes me. I was like, I this song was song. great. And we, yes, it we did it. We saved the world. We did. Anyway, um, you can pick it up at Amazon, CD Baby, iTunes, anywhere you can buy good music. You can even listen to it for free on Spotify. You can. Just listen to it for free. That's okay, too. We want you to love us. That's all we care about. Yes. Just, we just want to be loved, guys. <laughs> Is that too much to ask for? Yeah, uh, probably. Okay, fair um, enough. Yeah. So for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Nah. <laughs>